Welcome to another episode of the ShadowSec Cybersecurity Podcast. I am Nima Mihanyar, and joining me as always is my partner in crime, a man whom I told during his last major presentation to make sure he was accurate, brief, and be seated so obviously the presentation can continue. And he proceeded to promise me that he will be as brief as possible, no matter how long it took. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jorge de Marca. That's me. Hey, Jorge, how are you doing? I feel so ready for this podcast. I agree. We've prepped so well thanks to a couple of technical glitches that we've been having from our software side. So this is take two. Let's hope this one goes well. Yeah. So before we kick it off, I'm going to give our standard disclaimer for all of our listeners that obviously the views and opinions that Jorge and I share on here are our own and do not represent those of our employers, current or present, or any group or organizations that we are associated with. So with that being said, I also want to obviously recognize this milestone that you and I have reached, Jorge, because this is now episode number 10. So we've gone 10 weeks straight doing this, which is great. So we should give ourselves virtual pats on the back and let's hope we can continue going on for another 100. All right. All right. Okay. So I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us for another week. We hope that obviously you all are doing well and keeping safe. And we have a interesting lineup of stories for all of you, which we hope you will enjoy. Starting with a story from securityweek.com titled, Many SolarWinds customers failed to secure systems following the hack. Now this story is actually highlighting the fact, and it's quite a surprising fact, that even after one of the biggest recent hacks in history, knowing that very sophisticated actors are using this to actually gain access to companies' networks, a lot of companies still have not patched their SolarWinds instances and are still using the backdoored version, which obviously means that threat actors still have an open door to all of these networks. Now, Risk Recon, which is a MasterCard company that specializes in risk assessment, said that on December 13th of last year, shortly after the breach came to light, they actually found 1,785 organizations exposing Orion to the internet. And that number dropped to 1,330 by February 1st of this year. However, only 8% of these companies have actually applied the Orion update. And even more concerning is that 4% of the companies that are exposed in Orion still use a version containing the Sunburst code that allows the easy access internet network. They also say that the list of organizations running the vulnerable Orion instance includes US state and local government agencies, universities, hosting providers, and even Fortune 500 companies. There's also a non-zero chance that some out there have applied the changes and gone through the work and are still running the vulnerable version, what you say? <laughs> this is very true, and those companies definitely need uh, a little slap around the head <laughs> because obviously the takeaway here is that all the companies should make sure that they patch these high severity items and they should patch them correctly as you mentioned as well Jorge because logically I can't understand why these companies have not applied such a critical patch but I know that a lot of these companies may not obviously have a strong security culture and something like this would certainly make me think twice about doing business with any company dislacking in security 
But on the other hand, my optimistic side is hoping that the majority of these that they've found are just honeypots of some sort. And in this case, there's also a few indicators that would allow for defense in depth. So even if some people might not have applied the, the necessary updates to replace the vulnerable software and so on. I'm hoping their proxy defenses and so on are helping somewhat in mitigating the risk of them being further targeted. At any rate, no excuse to not clean up, especially in this case, and especially with this amount of resources, visibility and support from vendors. Exactly, I agree. That layered defense approach that you mentioned, definitely a, a big thing that these companies should do. But hopefully, none of these companies are actually using a WebKit-based browser, because obviously those are currently being abused, as is being highlighted in our next article from ZDNet.com, which is titled, Malvertisers Abuse WebKit Zero Day to Redirect iOS Macro Users to Shady Sites. And here, a cyber criminal group called Scam Club that specializes in showing malicious ads has been found using a previously unpatched zero day vulnerability in WebKit based browsers to break security restrictions and redirect users from legitimate websites to shady sites hosting online gift card scams. Now, the attackers were first spotted in June of 2020 and are still active today. However, patches for this WebKit Zero Day have been released. And the way they actually work is that they buy large quantities of ad slots on multiple ad platforms in the hope that some of their bad ads will make it through the actual security checks. In this specific attack, they actually saw the group abuse a method to allow the malicious code to break out of the ad slots iframe and so be able to obviously interact with the underlying website. And they use this to be able to redirect users from legitimate sites to a shady domain, which is flogging gift cards, prizes, or malware to the actual victims. Now they say that based on the attack type, victims are actually hard to trace, but they believe that anyone who actually bought gift cards from an unofficial website using Safari or Chrome for iOS can be considered a candidate and should check their payment card history for any suspicious transactions. So obviously the moral here is don't buy gift cards from sites that you didn't actively seek out and which obviously are not the official portal by which you get these gift cards that you actually want. And obviously if there's a pop-up that uh, says that you've won an iPhone or that you've won a gift card from XYZ without you actually having done anything to actually win that prize, just remember the age old proverb that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Or just buy the gift card. I can assure you, you're giving somebody a gift. This one specifically, <laughs> I find I find very entertaining because it's a scattergun approach through and through. I'll leave a, a link in the show notes to a very nice article from Imperva and then some other papers around the injection of ads in different ways. Uh, malicious ads can come from a number of ways and there's many nodes that can be compromised to inject malicious ads into the ad delivery networks. However, the focus of the story by Confined Security, which is a team that has already written extensively about Scam Club, is about a vulnerability in WebKit-based browsers that allowed several interesting things to happen. So 
I think scam club malvertisements are defined mainly by forced redirection, right? And these scams offer, as you mentioned, prizes to lucky users and such things, right? In the end, it's all about bypassing the user's ability to reason through things like, oh, this is too good to be true. It's more about, you know, appealing to our lizard brain. However, a typical scam club payload has a few layers to it, starting with an ad tag that loads a malicious payload, right? That's what gets presented in part to the user, right? Typically, this payload can be hosted in an innocuous looking place like a CDN and so on. At any rate, this bug allows an attacker to bypass an assumed restriction of sandboxed iframes. That is, in theory, the allowed top navigation by user activation attribute within a sandboxed iframe only allows for redirection to happen upon user interaction, meaning a tap or a click, something proactive from the user. However, a bug in WebKit-based browsers is allowing for such a redirect to happen without that proactive action. Instead, placing an event handler outside of the iframe and within the malicious payload allows the attackers to capture just any message sent around by the code in the website, which typically, as any modern web application, is riddled with these practices where messages are sent and brokered around, often with wildcard destinations. Which means, in this particular case, we have an scattergun approach through and through, where the attacker is relying on the ad to be delivered in the first place, that can or cannot happen, then the malicious payload could be loaded, that could or could not happen, and then an event should be sent in such a generic way to hit the event listener, which in turn forces the redirect, which is a sequence of at the very least three different events, which highlights the criticality of this attack being as comprehensive as possible in terms of ad networks, right? You have to deliver this payload to millions of users to get tens of thousands of impressions and thus achieve your goal. At any rate, very nice write-up from the folks at Confined Security. Definitely, for sure. And like you said, they obviously just do like a scattergun approach where they try to get as many people as they can. And I did read a report somewhere that they said that Scam Club actually reached 50 million users with a three month long ad campaign previously as well. So that just gives you an idea of the amount of victims they try to target. And obviously a bug like this, which doesn't require any interaction by the user in the iframe is basically like a zero click bug which is obviously something that all attackers love because it obviously carries the highest amount of reward for the lowest effort. Okay, so now we're going to jump on to our next actual story. And this is actually a sort of rehash from the past. And it's actually a story from Bloomberg and it's titled The Long Hack. And this is actually a revisit from a story that Bloomberg did in 2018, where they claimed that the supply chain for super micro motherboards was being compromised. Now, it's important to emphasize here that Bloomberg specifically said in the article that they're not saying that Supermicro was complicit or knew about it, only that in this reporting, it was their boards that were being targeted en route to their destination. And for Supermicro's part, they also declined knowing anything or having anything to do with it. Now, we know obviously that these type of supply chain attacks do take place where a company produces the hardware to the correct specifications that they are required to do so. But while it is being transported, malicious actors actually intercept a package, open it 
add their own hardware or chips and then repackage it and send it on its way back to its original destination. Now in the majority of these cases, the manufacturing company has no part in the actual malicious activity and we know that these things do occur because the Edward Snowden leaks actually directly showed that the US had done exactly this as a way for their agencies to gain access to specific targets and company networks. So the fact that this Hollywood style attack is taking place is not really in question here. In this case, Supermicro just obviously wants to protect their reputation, which is understandable. But as I mentioned, everyone with knowledge of this case is stating that Supermicro themselves are not complicit. Now, when the original story broke, a lot of companies actually took their Supermicro boards and did extensive tests on them to see if they were in any way communicating back to China. And to date, no examples have been found proving this. But the challenge with this type of supply chain attack is that the attackers are able to choose specific shipments that they want to target that they know will be used in specific systems and so compromise those. And so to do a broad test of random motherboards by everybody is really like knowing that there is one needle in a thousand haystacks in front of you and poking your hand in 10 of them and saying that there's no evidence so it must not be true, even though you know no needles have been placed in these haystacks before. And it goes even beyond that particular interception and repackaging. The article is great. It actually summarizes not just some known facts, but also some previous reporting by the Bloomberg group at large. I think the Bloomberg reporting in this particular article is slightly salty because they mentioned several times <laughs> that at the time of publishing some previous now known to be true facts the companies involved were denying them, were kind of disparaging the reporting. They were basically turning a deaf ear and denying everything. I must insist, as you mentioned earlier, neither Supermicro or any of its employees has been accused of wrongdoing. And former US officials who provided information for this story emphasized that the company itself has not been the target of any counterintelligence investigation. The article, as I was saying, goes beyond that particular technique and describes three. The first is compromise of BIOS code present in chips shipped on Supermicro boards. So that's part of the techniques utilized in the Pentagon hack of 2010. Then compromise of trusted updates delivered to the partners through their website. And in this particular case, the most noteworthy aspect of it was how targeted it seemed to be. So Intel reported this particular one to Supermicro, but they also reported that a fraction of the computers eligible for the update actually got compromised. And that investigation led to potential compelling work of attribution that pointed towards China-sponsored actor APT17. And we know these guys like to, to hide in fun places and apply some creativity <laughs> to their work. And then the third technique and the most kind of bone chilling of this whole arsenal is straight up implants in chips and boards. And one of the official of three literary agencies, I'm not gonna go through the myriad of names mentioned in the article, that's what the article is for. But one of the sentences that jumped at me was, the attackers knew how that board was designed and so it would pass quality assurance tests meaning the implants, which is, of course, amazing. 
And then this spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry called accounts of these attacks attempts to discredit China and Chinese enterprises and accused the US officials of making things up <laughs> to hype up the China threat. Yeah. China has never and will never require enterprises, I'm still quoting, or individuals to collect or provide data, information, and intelligence from other countries from the Chinese government by installing backdoors. The spokesperson said that in a written statement. So at this point, we're talking, they're writing fiction during office hours, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I completely agree with you. The Chinese don't need any companies to actually put any backdoors for them because I'm sure they have already found a way to get backdoors in all of these companies. And they're, they're great for it. I admire China so much. China is a great country. I wish I could be Chinese. <laughs> exactly. But also worth mentioning as well, the fact that Bloomberg actually kept to their guns back in 2018 when the story first broke. And they were actually under quite considerable pressure from a lot of these companies and government agencies to actually retract the actual statements. But to their credit, they actually refused and they actually supported their journalists on this, which actually I think is really good. And also, as I mentioned, obviously, no one is really questioning if these type of attacks do happen. But going back to the story that they just uh, published and referring to what you just mentioned in regards to the Pentagon case as well, this was something that actually stood out to me in the article because what you were referring to, obviously, was the Pentagon attack that happened in 2018 where another supplier to the Pentagon, in this case, it was China's Lenovo Group, they actually found that military units in Iraq were using Lenovo laptops from China's Lenovo group in which the hardware had been altered. They found that they had a chip encrypted on a motherboard that would actually record all the data that was being inputted into the laptop and send it back to China. Now, these laptops were being used in a network operation center near Fallujah in Iraq. And they actually said that they don't know how much data they actually got, but they obviously had to take all the systems off the network. Now, the thing that got me really about the story was that in this case, they were obviously facing Iraqi insurgent groups. But what would have been the case if they were facing Chinese forces instead? Because obviously that would be like the ultimate behind the lines intelligence. Now, of course, you're going to say that if the US was in conflict with China, then you would obviously not buy any of their equipment. But exactly how true is that? And to what extent do they need to actually be in a conflict for that to be the case? And the reason I actually say that, because, for example, we know that India has been having some very public military engagements with China along their respective borders near Tibet. And these were actual military engagements between the two armies. And I can tell you that I'm sure that India uses Lenovo laptops as they are obviously a big brand and there has been a reporting that India has suddenly banned Lenovo from all of their government and military agencies. And if China had the same access to the systems in India, they could have easily actually seen all the troop positions along the border and planned accordingly. So the point really is a country doesn't need to have actually declared war for this type of intelligence to be useful and actionable for them. 
So the supply chain attack is a very real and very serious threat. And these are obviously extremely difficult to detect and prevent since in many cases, they are actually perpetrated by nation states. In many cases, they're perpetrated by people who are far and away more qualified than any of your defenders will ever be. That's what baffles me about the attitude of certain groups, enterprises, institutions, and so on against supply chain compromise, as, as if there was something that could be done to actually control it. Like, of course, risk mitigation will always be a part of the equation and risk-based defense will always be a part of the equation. And I think through this article, what comes across two or three times is the Pentagon and every other three-letter agency that is mentioned hints at having several layers of internal protocol in terms of what systems they allowed into their critical slash classified networks, right? That also jumped at me. So in the article, you can see how government agencies would use, say, Supermicro, Lenovo, etc. for research that isn't homeland security related, but then would flat out refuse to use such hardware in other applications. So that's what I ex expect be done with a threat this pervasive and so distributed, right? Because in the end, how many vendors interact with a single piece of equipment by the time it's handed to its final user? Especially something like electronics, right? Where you have such specialization, people generating chips, people generating the semiconductor technology, people generating the firmware, then vendors tweaking it and so on, right? Very, very true. And I do think that you make an excellent point that a lot of these nations are obviously going to put additional controls on their sensitive portions of their networks. And we've already started seeing that with Huawei, because obviously the US and the UK and some of the other 5i countries have already issued government directives that state that Huawei equipment is not allowed in any way to be used in any sensitive data processing systems. So obviously supply chain attacks have come to the forefront in the past year and I do think that they will continue to be very prevalent in the near future and it will be very interesting to actually see how it develops and what additional tools and recommendations governments actually give out in order to be able to handle this type of risk. But with that being said we're going to jump into our next story from ZDNet, and this one is a much more light-hearted one compared to supply chain attacks. And this one is related to ZDNet's recent testing that they did on five of the most popular VPN providers to find which one was fastest. And a quick TLDR, because we don't want to really jump in too much into this one. They basically found that the top three for them was ExpressVPN, NordVPN, and Hotspot Shield. Now myself, obviously, I'm actually currently using ExpressVPN, but before I was a Hotspot Shield user as well. And I can attest to the fact that Hotspot Shield does have some very good speeds. But I decided to obviously switch to ExpressVPN just because of the fact that I found that ExpressVPN handles the privacy aspect a little bit better in regards to what type of information they collect and what they use it for. But again, my actual use case involves speed and a little bit of privacy. But of course, if you're a user who only really cares just about speed 
and doesn't really mind too much any of the other aspects, then Hotspot Shield is of course another product that you can also look into. But as always with any of these type of products, you should always do extensive research on the pros and cons of the actual product and also keeping in mind what your use case is. That's such a smooth segue towards our sponsor, Rando VPN. With, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Absolutely kidding. Absolutely kidding. No, I, I think really the people who has the most who have the most interesting things to say about VPNs don't often speak up. And I think the VPN market is mostly consumed by people who want to bypass some sort of restriction, which is okay. However, I think the article closes by saying or stating the obvious, which is please evaluate the VPN against your needs and also look closely at the testimonials and the proof, quote unquote, presented for each of the claims. And also keep in mind in this same spirit that even if all the claims by the VPN provider are correct, you also have to trust that their IT hygiene is better than any old enterprise out there, which is something to take into account, but also that they can keep their VPN infrastructure under control, meaning under their possession and with no extraneous invaders, backdoors, and so on in it. So again, the best VPN is the one you put together, especially if you're careful about who your providers are. But bear in mind that even if you do a fair amount of due diligence, like maybe going to that one privacy guy's website and taking a look at the pseudo up-to-date information in there, making sure the jurisdiction makes sense, login makes sense, keep in mind those two things, right? So depending on your needs, you might not be in a good place with any commercial provider out there. And also keeping all the metadata about your purchase and your history of interacting with the VPN service fairly detached from your identity. Exactly. Some very excellent points there as well. And obviously, as Jorge mentioned, if you want the most secure, most private solution, then obviously rolling your own is the best option to go. And also, if you obviously find any providers that accept payment through cryptocurrencies, then obviously that is another benefit for you guys. But of course, VPNs are very useful and they're here to stay. So make sure you take your time to actually pick the right one for you. And make sure the cryptocurrency backbone is also privacy respecting. There's a lot to this, isn't there? <laughs> just, say, just saying, just saying. It's a, you, you got all these people out there expecting extreme privacy by paying for their VPN with Bitcoin they bought in Coinbase, which is interesting. Exactly. Very true. So that's going to jump us in to our next privacy-related story, ironically, coming again from ZDNet, titled, More bosses are using software to monitor remote workers and not everyone is happy about it. So this interesting article actually focuses on the fact that organizations are finding it tough to manage remote workers while they're obviously working from home and they're turning more to technology to help with this and allow them to monitor the employees' activities. And obviously they want to have more visibility on what they're doing and how they're using their time. Now, the argument for this states that they want it so that they can obviously monitor how effectively the employees use their time and also that the employer would be able to identify any bottlenecks in the employees' processes quickly that prevent their team from being able to achieve a certain goal. 
Now, a lot of the tools on offer actually give the employer a wide range of accesses, such as seeing the websites that their employees visit, the apps that they use, and in some cases, also the ability to actually record their keystrokes and even their desktop session. Now, even though I do understand that effective monitoring does need to be in place, especially for areas and teams that use and have access to highly sensitive data, but there are other means to achieve those type of controls apart from literally videotaping the user's desktop session, because that obviously really goes into the realm of serious micromanagement. Now, I hope that obviously the majority of managers who have access to this type of thing do not use it like this. But for those that do, arguing that you need to monitor your employees to ensure effective use of their work time while you're actually making horrendous use of yours by just potentially viewing hours of surveillance just to catch them browsing YouTube or whatever else speaks volumes to your lack of leadership. If anything, managers should just really focus on the work quality rather than the quantity. Are the assignments and responsibilities that you're assigning to your team members being met regularly and to a high standard? If so, then obviously you have an absolutely no need for this type of monitoring. And if anything, this will actually go a long way to harming the trust your team has in that particular manager. Something that's concerning, and I think it was best put by a user called Wolfie Crystal in Twitter says, Esoteric metrics based on analyzing extensive data about employee activities has been mostly the domain of fringe software vendors. Now it's built into Microsoft Office 365. <laughs> it includes screenshot. This is an oldie but goodie. Yeah? So he, he includes a screenshot of the conclusions Office 365 is drawing based on employee activity, right? Things around communication, the effective use of meeting software, collaboration on different types of contests, teamwork, meaning how much and in what ways you interact with people, mobility, and so on. And again, the concern isn't that the tool is actually making or taking some intensive telemetry of usage, because arguably a lot of this information is already collected for troubleshooting. What I really take issue with, or rather my nervousness about this whole thing, is how seriously will this pre-baked conclusions that are sweeping assumptions across cultures, workplaces, companies, and so on, right? How serious will senior leaders making decisions about people's well-being be taking this? Because if they're basing their decisions affecting people's lives, of course, on this canned assumptions on data that are, again, quite generic, that would be a concern. And also, this also signals that there's an appetite for this. Good old Wolfie, he knows. <laughs> and also just going back to what you were mentioning about how Microsoft is actually incorporating this, they did actually have one particular feature that really stood out to me, which was something that they had rolled out, but then very quickly actually rolled back, which was called the productivity score. And they rolled it back because of the backlash that they received. So what this actually is, was analyze how users within an organization use Microsoft 365 products and then assign them an overall productivity score based on how often they engage with things like meetings, emails, and messaging apps. 
Now, for some reason, they actually thought that having an employee's name with a field called productivity score would not create some type of bias for employees, especially as this was linked to them using Microsoft products. So for example, if I was holding 10 Zoom meetings in a day and my colleague was holding two meetings in Microsoft Teams, my boss would see that my colleague is being more productive than me. This obviously created and caused a big backlash from privacy advocates and Microsoft very quickly did roll back on the idea. But another good point that the article actually hits at was the legal ramifications to this type of close monitoring by employers under the GDPR. Because of course, you are collecting some very personal and identifiable data about people and storing it. So this certainly falls into the legal purview where employees may need to give consent. And they stated that the standard employer consent form in this case may not cut the mustard because there is obviously a clear power dynamic at play because of course, it would be impossible for an employer to say to an employee, I need you to sign this so I can monitor you. And if you don't, then you can't work here because then that is pretty much detrimental to coercion. In fairness, history, at least in the countries I've worked in, tells us that whenever employees take it upon themselves to review closely the telemetry that's been done on them and how clearly it's communicated to them, that makes for some effective balances. So people actually taking companies to court and so on. So that's encouraging. In Europe specifically, there's actually reasons to take GDPR seriously. And the article goes on to talk about the six lawful bases for processing personal data under GDPR. So roughly, it's clear consent from the individual in question, and the clarity is what is often in dispute. So is it clear enough to have some small print in the login screen and at some page in the contract? Maybe yes, maybe no. Legal obligation, vital interest to the individual, public interest and contractual obligations. And this also opens the door for legitimate interest of the data controller. And I think legitimate interest and the extent to which you need to collect data for your obligations is where the questionable practices lie. And this is a, a callback also to our discussion in the previous privacy segments about the App Store and the extension policy for developers in Chrome where a number of quote-unquote legitimate interest use cases warranted extensive telemetry. And one could argue in many of those cases that the same effect can be achieved gathering and keeping significantly less data. There's also an interview with Sarah Pierce, that's a privacy and cybersecurity partner at the global law firm Paul Hasting, and she says that companies are increasingly seeking to justify remote monitoring tools under the grounds of legitimate interest. From speaking to my employment colleagues, that's what she said, <laughs> it is very difficult to find a legal basis to justify monitoring in this way. So those are some very good points that you actually do make. And I do obviously want to highlight the fact that everyone knows that companies do monitor their equipment and their employees based on, for example, the websites they visit for security purposes to make sure that obviously they're not going to malicious websites. And obviously it's very important to know that when you're using corporate assets like their laptops that the company provides, 
those are assets that the company owns. So they are very much within their right to monitor those and to make sure that they're not being used in any ways that goes against the company policy. That is no question about it. And obviously, if you're using those type of assets, just make sure that you're not doing or conducting any personal business on there. Because of course, you shouldn't be conducting any personal business on corporate assets. That is obviously for business purposes and you should only be using it to conduct your work activities. But my only concern is when it extends to literal desktop video surveillance. Then for me, that just seems to be a bit overreach. But in terms of actually monitoring the actual equipment, companies are well within their rights to be able to do that because the equipment at the end of the day belongs to them. I think your concern about straight up surveillance tools, again, EDRs and behavior-based EDRs, which are plenty, are malware that is just paid better to be good, right? read expertise that has been paid better on the light side of the force, right? In the end, these tools require the privileges of malware and behave like malware. And we have to keep that in mind. My concern is also placed in the metadata, storage of metadata, retention of metadata, and the inferences that can be made from metadata with enough clever people on the case. You'd be very surprised how much you can reconstruct from somebody's life and intimacy from correlating information in clever ways. And of course, now with the shortage of intensive telemetry, mobile platforms and so on, the not so sweet science of making spectacularly accurate inferences from relatively slow and small amounts of metadata is going to get better and better. So. Again, this calls back to the guidance by many information commissioners across the modern world in which employers need to do a self-assessment of data retention purposes and the nature of the correlation done with this data. I think especially the bigger institutions that have the ability to purchase such software have to keep in mind that we have to worry not just about what's been done today, but also what can be done in the future with the data that we retained today. A very excellent point you just made there, Jorge, definitely. That metadata obviously, in many cases, reveals a lot more information than what most people actually believe. And that obviously was highlighted from the Edward Snowden leaks, where obviously the government was clearly stating that they weren't recording the contents of people's conversations and only collecting the metadata. But obviously, at the end, we obviously found out exactly how intrusive that collection of just the metadata can be and exactly what type of inferences they could actually make. Because, I mean, they don't need to obviously know the conversation you've had with an abortion clinic to know what you've probably been discussing by just the fact that you called an abortion clinic. Exactly. Or for example, all of those EDRs running in laptops connected to domestic networks that are probably split tunneled and are finding all of your smart dildos and whatever in your house. It's real. Metadata mining is real. Exactly. Definitely. Although I wonder what type of metadata a smart dildo would have. That'd be really interesting. The speed that you like, maybe. It'd be interesting. <laughs> speed, frequency. Exactly. Time of day. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now we're going to jump in to our bite-sized chunks portion of the podcast and of the news. Bite-sized chunk portion part of the podcast. Exactly. 
Starting with the fact that the leader of Mexico's Green Party has now been removed from office following allegations that he received money from a Romanian ATM skimming gang that stole hundreds of millions of dollars from tourists visiting Mexico. So obviously that's not very green, is it? I'm sorry, I think it is excessively green. In fact, that's the problem. Oh, good Probably point. Probably yes. too much focus on the green. The moolah. Clean that up, dude. Exactly. He wants that moolah. <laughs> clean that up, yeah. <laughs> Another chunk for this week comes from the bleeping computer. And this talks about Brave's issues with privacy. Again, Brave, wonderful iteration on the Chromium code base. It's all about privacy optimization and then providing further settings for users to cranking up to paranoid. In this particular case, the issue is caused by Brave's CNAME decloaking at blocking feature that blocks third-party tracking scripts that are using CNAME DNS entries to masquerade as first-party content. The issue actually leaked DNS queries to the locally configured DNS server. This was found initially or reported initially in Reddit, but then validated by PortSwigger, which of course are the, the makers of Burp Suite. When using Brave Store mode, it should forward all requests to the Tor proxies and not send any information to any non-Tor internet devices to increase privacy. That's expected behaviors, right? So I, I trust this is being fixed, but again, I hope this doesn't give Brave any unnecessary bad rap because I think it's a great project. I totally agree. And uh, we do know that from the industry's perspective, Brave is obviously known to be very security conscious. And these type of vulnerabilities and issues are relatively rare in Brave, to be honest with you. So I do think that obviously, even with this issue that it has, it's still a very good, very secure browser that a lot of people can obviously take reassurance on. Then, going to another story this week, car makers Kia and Hyundai, both which are owned by the Korean-based Hyundai Motor Group, have recently been reporting outages in the US, but they did state this week that it was not the result of a ransomware attack, and they haven't yet provided any more details on what is actually causing it, so that would be interesting to see. And also this week, the UK government has welcomed the draft decisions by the European Commission to grant the UK adequacy status for data transfers, but told the UK to make sure that they hurry along the approval process. Now, these draft decisions, which actually have followed months of discussions between the two parties, recognize the UK's high data protection standards, which actually paves the way for the free flow of data to continue between the EU and the UK. And this is obviously very important because, of course, we know that the EU region is governed under GDPR and the UK is governed by what is called the Law Enforcement Directive. So obviously, for them to be able to continue exchanging data, they needed to have a type of agreement in place that recognizes the UK's data protection standards as being adequate. In other UK bite-sized chunk bits, Secrecy for high-risk tech research agency ARIA, titles The Sunday Times, talking about the announcement of an agency to the tune of 800 million pounds. This is a scientific research agency legally entitled to invest in projects that are likely to fail. 
and which will be exempted from freedom of information laws. So you mean that it's allowed to lose money and people aren't allowed to question it? People will have to even pay for it. My God. But it also enters this territory of, oh, so I can also produce public funded classified material which will not be published? In the end, this feels like duct taping around policy that doesn't work, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. But if they do open up a position, I will be applying so I can basically throw all of my crazy money losing ideas at it and it will be fine. <laughs> I have so many of those too. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so I think that's going to wrap up another week for us and for another episode of the Shadow Sex Cybersecurity Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. And as always, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or on the emails if you have any comments or feedback. We hope that you guys have enjoyed this episode and we hope that you guys will have a good day and a good week and stay safe. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.